0: And uh, get your Bibles out, turn to Habakkuk 2. And if you're saying to yourself, Habakkuk, where in the world is that? It's towards the end of the Old Testament. In fact, just a handful of books prior to the New Testament. Um, short, short book. Uh, three chapters, and we've, we're spending five weeks in Habakkuk. This is week Three and uh, coming to what is arguably the most difficult text in the book. And so as we move towards Habakkuk 2, let me maybe just begin to move us down the line, put us in the the frame of mind, uh, move our hearts and our souls to the place uh, where Habakkuk certainly would have found himself. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever witnessed witnessed a situation where the wicked prosper? Uh, Have you ever witnessed a situation... You guys laughed about that. That's not funny. (laughs) Not a joke. Um, You ever witnessed a situation where a guilty individual goes free? Hey, Kyle, I'm getting a ton of feedback up here. I'm not sure what that's about. Um, But ever witnessed a situation where the guilty has gone free or they've gone unpunished? And you felt this intense sense of, of frustration and, and the injustice that comes with that. Maybe you've seen that on the news. Maybe you've known someone that that's happened to. Maybe that's happened to you yourself. Have I mean, you ever been there? Where, where you suffer under injustice? Where you suffer under uh, Oppression? Where you see the atrocities of the world unfolding around you. And you're saying, God, where are you? I was thinking about that just this week. I was thinking about just even the last hundred years. The truth is you could go beyond a hundred years and you find the same thing. But you just think about the last hundred years and the number of, of injustices and atrocities that would define and describe that time. Think of Mao's China. I think of the Nazi regime. You don't hear nearly as much about this, but you, I think of the killing fields in Cambodia that unfolded in the 70s. Almost two million people slaughtered. You think about things, uh, terms like ethnic cleansing that described the conflict in Rwanda. You think about the genocide that, that happened in Bosnia. And, and the truth is that th- those are just a handful of so many other atrocities, so many other injustices, so many other wrongs that have unfolded all around the globe that they've permeated the world. But so many of these other things don't rise to common knowledge or uh, finding themselves in the international news cycle on a daily basis. For me, one of those examples, it's highly personal. I spent two summers in this particular place. There's only one individual on the planet that I've ever named any of my children after. And it's a gentleman that I met while I was in Sierra Leone, West Africa. And some of you be like, Sierra Leone, I have no idea. No idea what's happened there. Blood diamonds. That's what's happened there. And for two summers... I spent time with people who were the victims of this rebel group that would invade towns and villages. And they would pillage and they would maim and they would rape and they would kill. And so I've held babies, literally three, four, five month old babies that have had both of their arms cut off by rebels. I've, I've played with toddlers that have scars that run the length of their head or the length of their back where they were cut open and left for dead. I've talked with children soldiers who will coldly and blankly describe to you how, in a drug induced haze, they slaughtered people from their own village so as to save their own lives. I've walked through displacement camps. I've sat with people as they've walked through their homes that's been ransacked. And night after night, you would see that. And I remember laying in bed going, God, why? Why would this happen? Why would you allow this? Where is the justice? What would cause this? And worse yet, at that particular time that I was there, the rebels still control the substantial part of the country, and they lived freely and fatly, and they lived such a bountiful life. These peoples, their lives were just an utter mess. I think that same sense, that same confusion, that same frustration, that inability to make sense of all of it is the same confusion that Habakkuk has, trying to reconcile. Now, what is happening in Israel, and what is God doing, and why is he using this wicked nation, the Chaldeans come in, and and using them to punish us? Where's the justice in this? probably felt a lot like the psalmist in Psalm 73 when he said, behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. And see, when we come to Habakkuk 2, this is what's so crucial about the second part of Habakkuk 2. Is that I think for a lot of us, when we look at the wicked, when we look at the injustices, when we look at the evil, we feel a lot like the psalmist. Man, they don't struggle. Their life's not hard. They're, they're, they're living high on the hog. And for a moment, that's, that's a very real sense. But here's what you have to understand. It's a facade. Because maybe for a season, it's going to appear that way. Maybe for a time period, they're going to get away with it. Maybe for a handful of days, weeks, months, or even years, there will seem to be no trouble for them. But here's, here's what you got to know. And if you get anything, if you get anything from our time together this morning in Habakkuk 2, it's this, listen, God will deal with sin. God will deal with sin. But God will also vindicate his people. And what we see in Habakkuk 2, it's this, this two-edged sword that, that, that on one side, let's just be honest, if, if the things that we see in the text here this morning are things that are true in your life, then, loved one, what you need to hear is the warning of God that He is going to deal with the sin in your life. And you would be wise to turn, to repent, and to get right with Him in short order. On one side, this is very much a warning but on the other side of this, if you identify with those who are suffering under um, these injustices, if, if, if you're a victim of, of these scenarios, then you take hope in the fact that God's going to vindicate, that he's going to deal with the sin, he's going to deal with the wrong, he, he's going to make that right. As we see repeatedly in the scriptures, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So let's turn our attention to Habakkuk 2. I'm going to start in verse 6. This is a few verses into God's second response to Habakkuk. And in a moment, we'll go back and look at those few verses. But I want to just read where we're going to spend the majority of our time here this morning. Starting in verse 6, I'm going to read through verse 20. I'll just tell you here at the outset, not exactly a friendly butterfly in your stomach, happy passage, but something we need uh, to hear Spoken to the Chaldeans, here's what God would say to them. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say. You notice that next word there, woe. You're going to see that word five times. That's going to be a really important word for us as we move through the text this morning. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Some of your translations might say debts. Verse 7, will not those dead or suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you've plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork responds. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink and pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. A cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth To cities and all who dwell in them. And then verse 18 begins the fifth and final woe, though it doesn't start with the word woe, we actually see that in verse 19. But look at what Habakkuk says: What prophet is an idol, when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple, Let all the earth keeps silence before him. Loved ones, let's go before the Lord and ask him to open our hearts and minds to the truth that he has for us this morning. Lord Jesus, as we come before you, God, we pray that by the power of your spirit, God, that you would be at work within your people. We pray. God, in this really uh, honestly pointed and difficult passage that you would come and speak to us, God, that you would have your way uh, amongst us. We pray that your spirit would have the freedom uh, to speak into our lives, to challenge us in areas where we need to be challenged. God, maybe we need to be encouraged or or blessed or respond uh, accordingly to the good things that uh, you want to put in front of us today. God, wherever we find ourselves, we pray that you would have your way within us. God, I know Dwayne already prayed for Michael Kelshaw. I want to pray for uh, Kelshaw as well and just pray for him this morning. Thank you for that brother in the Lord. Thank you for his faithfulness and his love for you. God, would you be honored at Trinity in the marketplace today? Would you be lifted high there? And would you be honored here at Faith Church? Would you be lifted high this morning as we open your word? And Would you speak to us on these very difficult matters? Jesus, we thank you. We just pray this in your name. Amen. The title of the message this morning is A Response to Sin, A Response to Sin. Here's what you've got to understand at the outset, that God is highly interested in responding to sin, in dealing with sin, in combating sin. And God's second response actually begins in chapter 2, verse 2. Pastor Ryan preached on the first part of God's response Last week, where uh, after Habakkuk's second complaint, he's saying, hey, listen, I want you to write this vision, make it plain, uh, make it clear, and I want you to run with urgency so that people uh, can know this. And then he's saying, you got to wait. you got to wait for it. And uh, I want you to have faith. And then he begins to turn his attention towards the Chaldeans, towards the instrument of his uh, wrath towards Israel. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. And so two things, just two things in the text, and we'll spend the vast majority of our time here on this first point. It's God's judgment of sin. God's judgment of sin. Sin. What's God's response to sin? It's that He judges sin. God will deal with sin always. The cross is the epicenter of this. Nothing, nothing, nothing speaks to God's um, willingness to deal with sin like the cross does. It's God's judgment of sin, and as we look through this text, as I said a moment ago, there's five woes, five woes here in this passage, and that's really going to be how we move through the text this morning. Here's what you've got to understand about woes uh, in the Scriptures. that they, they were a word of judgment or of condemnation or of impending doom. This is the same word that Jesus used with the Pharisees in Matthew 23 when he gave that scathing rebuke of them. Same concept here. But not only is there a sense of of, of judgment or condemnation, but look at the beginning of verse 6. There's also this sense of this taunt. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him? Him is the Chaldeans. All these are the nations that suffered Under the wicked and sinful rule of the Chaldeans. So let me just remind us again here at the outset. God will deal with sin and God will vindicate his people. For some of you this morning, there are some things as we move through these woes that God will issue to you, listen loved one, he will issue to you a warning. A warning is coming for you this morning. That you need to hear and to heed what God is speaking into your life. For others of you, if you have suffered under this injustice or exploitation or manipulation, what God is saying to you is, listen, take hope. And in my perfect timing, I'm going to deal with this. Because this is God's response to the violence on the earth is that he deals with sin. It will not be left undone. So God's judgment of sin, five woes. Here we go. We're going to look at each woe independent of one another. Here's the first one starting in verse 6 through verse 8. God's judgment of sin is this, is that the plunderer will be plundered. The plunderer will be plundered. Look at verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Right? I'm heaping up. I'm, I'm, I'm acquiring for myself something that is not my own. Habakkuk asks for how long? He goes on and says he loads himself with pledges and then the judgment begins to show up. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who awake you will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them in the same way that they were spoiled for you. You will now become spoiled for them. Why? Well, look at verse 8. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. That the plunderer will be plundered. See, what the Chaldeans did, it was not uncommon in, in their day that many nations would do this, but no doubt the, what they were doing is they were taking what was not rightfully theirs. They were obtaining wealth through some form of exploitation or corruption. And for this, God is saying, I am going to deal with that. I will not stand for that. Now, See, we see this all throughout the Scriptures. That God refuses to stand for this exploitation in order to benefit ourselves. In fact, in Isaiah 58, the nation of Israel is lamenting to God. They're saying, God, we are fasting and we're worshiping you. And you, you don't hear from us. You're not responding to us. And here's God's response to them. He says this. He says, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. I mean, that's already incongruent right there, isn't it? The whole point of fasting is not something that we get for ourselves; It's that we would step away from something in order to heighten our awareness of God and what he's calling us to. And much like the fast that we'll move towards in a few weeks as we push towards Easter, this idea of, God, we want you to heighten our awareness for the lost around us. We want you to heighten our awareness for those who are far from you. And so here in Isaiah 58, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. It's not even about me, it's about you. But it's this next line that's so fitting with respect to Habakkuk. Not only do you seek your own pleasure, but you oppress all your workers. Let's see what God is saying? He's like, you're trying to approach me, you're trying to come to me, but in the process, you want to take advantage of others for your own personal gain? I'm not having it. Get away from me with that. James 5, we see a very similar concept play out. In James 5, this warning that goes out to the rich, and what God is saying, or what James is speaking through there, is that the riches are disappearing, and the rich no longer are rich. And this is what God says the reason why, is, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The plunderer will be plundered. Now let's, let's just make sure we're clear on what this is and what this isn't. Because what I'm not saying is, okay, this is socialism. And if you're rich, you have to give things away. That's not what the scripture is, is advocating for here. What God is dealing with is a disorder honest acquisition of wealth that I am exploiting someone that I'm taking advantage of someone for my own personal well-being now hear me hear me when I say this God will not honor God will not bless God is is not going to be a part of any endeavor that exploits or oppresses or manipulates others in order to achieve personal gain on your part you might make a few bucks You might get ahead for a moment, but it won't last. And God will deal with it. The plunderer will be plundered. Now, let me just press the other side of this here for a moment. Because I think it's important for us, especially when we think about wealth and the acquisition of wealth, that we remember whose it is and where it came from. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 tells us this, what do you have that you did not receive? Think about that for a minute. What do you have... That you did not receive. You start thinking about stuff and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess maybe that's from God or that's probably from God or that's not really mine. Let me just help you out. Here's what you have that God did not give you. You have one thing and one thing only and it's sin. That's what you bring to the table. That's what you have, okay? That's yours that you can go, this is mine. I don't know that you really want to lay claim to that, okay? But that's what you have. Everything else that you have, God gave you. And so when we think about that, uh, here's the reality. God has entrusted this to us. We are stewards of what he has given to us, and you and I will give an account for how we have managed and how we have handled that. The plunderer will be plundered. Let me ask you two questions with respect to this. First of all, this. What I have, what I have, is it gained honestly? Is it gained righteously, could I look Jesus in the eye and go, I did it your way? Or is there some acquisition of wealth in your life that you have to deal with? Let me ask you this second question with this. Is what I have being leveraged spiritually? Do I recognize and realize that I am a steward who will account for every single thing that God has entrusted to me? And am I leveraging it for the kingdom of God? Or am I expending it all upon myself? The plunderer will be plundered. I told you this is a hard text, and it's only going to get worse. Here's the second one. Second woe. Verses 9 through 11. The fortified will be dismantled. The fortified will be dismantled. Look at what he says in verse 9 and following. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Right? So again, you have this exploitation of some going on for the well-being of others. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. And then notice what he does with it. To set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. So this is the exploitation of some in order to shelter or to isolate or to protect myself. It's exploitive in that evil means are used in order to set my house up in in, in a safe distance from all others. This is the idea that I'm working to protect myself from the dangers and the struggles of the world and that I use other people to accomplish it if necessary. There's a really, really sick irony that Habakkuk is pointing towards here in that I will take advantage of people in order to protect myself from being taken advantage of. You see that? That's what he's talking about here. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. Now notice the response here, right? The the result of this, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life and then the house itself is going to cry out and condemn you. Look at verse 11. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond Your drywall and your framing is going to cry out against you in this. Your own home will indict you, is what he's saying. It's true for us as well. The fortified will be dismantled. Let me just make a couple of observations, a couple of notes for us with respect to this, this idea. First of all, make note of this. You cannot isolate... And you cannot insulate yourselves from the effects of the fall. You can't escape the brokenness of the world. And so whether you want to, I'm going to move into the Sandias. I'm going to build my house right into a cliff wall. Yes, it will be harder to get to your home. Uh, you'll probably be a little bit better defended. Uh, you're not going to have nearly as many visitors. And some of you are like, that's a great idea. I'm moving into the mountains, right? All right. Okay, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. You cannot escape the brokenness that plagues all of us because it impacts your home and your family as well. And so whether you want to build a a, a home in the rock face of the Sandias, whether you want to move to rural Montana, one problem, you're going to. You can't escape sin. It's part of it. And this idea that we, we could isolate or insulate ourselves. I mean, this is, this is an, an epidemic in, in Christianity today. It's a problem in the church. We look out at the people around us and we go, hey, they're different. They're broken. They've got issues. And so we want to separate ourselves from them. First of all, you can't. Here's the other problem with this is that any attempt to escape all of these issues, any attempt to isolate or or, or to um, insulate myself, any attempt to escape is to ignore and to abdicate our role of mission. In fact, I would suggest to you this idea to escape is not only is it unbiblical, I would tell you that it's sinful. It's very hard to take the gospel to people who are lost and broken and falling when you refuse to be around people who are lost and broken and fallen. You cannot be obedient to that and isolate yourself from the world. In fact, it's just the opposite. An attempt to escape is the opposite of mission. The truth is what mission will do is it's going to move you and I right into the eye of the storm. And as Christians... Listen, loved ones, as Christians, I think we've misunderstood the scriptures, and we've certainly misunderstood Jesus. If we're thinking that well, his intent is to give me this designer life that's free of struggle or issue. First of all, that's impossible to do with sin. You and I would screw it up, even if he wanted to do that. Further, it's not what we're called to do. And I think part of this. I think part of this is. is as believers, we, we tend to look at our, our life here on earth and eternity, and we flip-flop what happens there. Because for all of eternity, we, we will thoroughly enjoy and take delight in and find the fullness of satisfaction in the person of God and in the creation of God, and, and it'll be incredible. But I think what we do is we go, well, I just want to do that now. Now. And we push mission, going, the world. we'll just be on mission in eternity. There's no one to get saved in eternity. It's, it's done. It's over. But we flip-flop them. And, she, and thank God. Thank God that it's not the other way around. Could you imagine having to be on mission for like 18 billion years, but you get eight to ten decades to enjoy eternity? That would be awful. Like this, 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 this brief window of, oh, that was amazing. Now i got to spend the rest of eternity slogging through this we flip-flop it. See, the fortified will be dismantled. We're trying to run away and hide. It's not what we're called to do and be. Further, in far too many ways, we're probably arriving at that place with evil means or evil motive, not always, but it's certainly not in line with the whole of what God's word is calling us to. The fortified will be dismantled. Notice this thirdly. Look at verse 12 and 13. Third woe. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it's not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. This third woe, what God is saying to the Chaldeans is that the violent will be destroyed. And you might look at this and go, man, I'm not violent. I'm off the hook. This, this one works for me. I, I, I'm doing okay here. And remember, there's a two-edged sword to this because if you've suffered under violence, what you need to know is you need to know that God is going to respond to that. But I would press us even a little bit further. You and I might not be violent individuals, but think about our city for a minute. What of him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity? We live in a violent city. All kinds of gang violence. Um, you think about the bloodshed from abortion. Our city's notorious in our country with respect to that. And so, while we might not be explicitly guilty in this, for us to stand by and do nothing at the very least makes us implicitly guilty with this. A response to this, our response to this is that we're willing to work to correct it. That we fight for all people, for the well-being and the flourishing of all people, not just for ourselves. Because the blood will be judged and God will deal with this injustice. I'm going to skip over verse 14 because I want to come back and finish with that. That's like a drink of cold water in the middle of a hot desert and I don't want to finish there. Go to verses 15 through 17. Fourth woe. Let me give it to you up front here and we're going to spend a few minutes on this one. The perverter will be disgraced. The perverter will be disgraced. Now look at the text. Look at the text here. Verse 15. Two things that are going on. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink You pour out your wrath and make them drunk. Okay, so very clearly Habakkuk is talking about drinking or drunkenness. Okay, and notice what it's tied to. The end of verse 15, in order to gaze at their nakedness. So two things, two things that are going on in the text. One is around drunkenness, the other is around nakedness. Here's what you have to understand. Oftentimes, in fact, most times in the scriptures, when you see drunkenness, it is associated with sexual sin. This is no exception here. You think of Noah and his daughters. You think of Lot and his situation. I mean, over and over and over again. uh, In the scriptures where there's drinking, usually sexual sin is involved or vice versa. Notice the result of that, God's response to that in verse 16. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. And then this, drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Right? So the perverter is now exposed. The perverter is now disgraced. They're suffering the same fate that their victim suffered. Right? We're going to force you to drink and we're going to expose your nakedness. And now God's going, okay, here's the retribution of that. It's going to be poured out on them. And this is something. This issue is so prevalent and so real in our society so let's make sure that there's no confusion that what he's talking about here he's talking about sexual abuse he's talking about sexual molestation he's talking about rape he's talking about sexual exploitation that's what he's talking about here and he goes on and says this in the second half of verse 16 the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. What does that mean? The cup in the scriptures are synonymous with the Lord's wrath. You see the cup of the Lord, you, you, you pretty good bet that what you're seeing is God is talking about his wrath. One example amongst many Mark 10. Remember Mark 10? A couple of knucklehead disciples come up to Jesus. Hey, we want to sit on your right hand and at your left. And Jesus' response to them is, uh, "I don't think you really know what you're asking." And then he says, "This can you drink the cup that I drink?" And what he's referencing there is, "Can you go to the cross?" Can you carry the sin of all mankind on your shoulders? Can you bear the weight of the world? Do you even know what you're asking? And of course, completely clueless. They're like, oh yeah, we can do that. And and he's like, all right, whatever. All right, they just don't get it. But in the clearest of terms, what's happening here is God is saying, I will judge this. Let me just talk to both sides here for a minute. And I, I, hope, I hope this first side, as a perpetrator, that no one in this room that that's true of. Mm. But I'd be remiss to not say something. And I know all too well that this stuff is prevalent. And so let me just talk to you, perpetrator, if you're in this room for a minute. The perverter will be disgraced. What do you do with this? First of all, you need to hear the warning that God will deal with this. Do not mistake yourself into thinking that you can secretly hide this from the Lord. You might hide it from others. You are not hiding anything from Him. Secondly, your response to this should, should maybe a couple of dynamics that would, would seem appropriate. One is that you put your hope in, in Jesus alone. You cannot fix what you've done. But the Lord can. Second of all, you repent of your sin. You repent of your sin before the Lord. You repent of, to, of your sin before those that you've wronged. Thirdly, you confess. That's different than repentance. Repentance is, is part of that is Confession. But part of that is turning. You confess, and when I say confess, you make sure the people that need to know, know. Don't you make your victim go to the authorities. Don't you make your victim be the one to out you. You out yourself. You started this, you finish it. You get help, and then you deal with the consequences. There are always, always, always consequences for sin. The perverter will be disgraced, I I hope, I hope this is no one in this room. But if it is, you need to hear the words and the truth of what God's word is saying here. That you respond and you be proactive about that. Now to you on the other side. And I know I'm speaking to a number of you. Let me let me first say that I'm sorry that I grieve for and with you. I want to make sure that there's just no doubt whatsoever that there is nothing, nothing, nothing in that that even resembles what God intended what God is about, what God longs for, that that is an absolute corruption of God's sexual ideal. Don't you ever let anyone tell you otherwise. Second of all, if you find yourself in this place and you've never told someone, could I be so bold and audacious as to implore you to do so? whether it be myself, whether it be another one of the pastors, whether it be one of their wives, whether it be an elder or one of their wives, whether it be a counselor. Probably one of the scariest things that you would ever have to do is to share that and to begin to get help. Because here's what I know. This will function as a boulder in your life that will make so many aspects of your life simply impossible to deal with. And so I'm asking, I'm, I'm imploring you. Would you tell someone? Let us help you find people to walk with you. Let us help uh, connect you to people who can walk you through this and begin to make sense of this and, and to get healthy in this. But here's the other thing. that, that Here's what you gotta hear. God will deal with it. God will deal with that wrong. God will deal with that sin. God will right that wrong. And I understand far too often that sometimes the justice system turns a blind eye. I understand that sometimes family is unhelpful. I understand that sometimes friends will fail you in this. God will not. God will not. The perverter will be disgraced. Here's the final one verse 18 and 19. The idolater will be deserted. He goes on, he says this What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trust in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Talk about hammering this guy. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath at all in it. The idolater will be deserted. And what Habakkuk is saying is, that God won't be there for you. What, what profit is that in something that you and I make? What, what, what's he going to say? How's he going to come awake? What's he going to do for you? Really what he's saying is, what to you who would trust in someone or something? Not named Yahweh or Jesus. Now, lest you start looking at this going, I don't have any statues in my house. I don't have any stones that I pray to. or Any wooden images that I'm like, help me out. I'm, I'm free on this one. Over and over and over again in the New Testament, we're told about idolatry. Why? Because it's a very real issue for you and I today. You're right. You probably don't have a little stone statue. You probably don't have some little wooden image that you bow down to or burn incense to or whatever. But I I can guarantee you there's a very good chance you have an idol in your life. In fact, here's how we would define an idol. An idol is anyone or anything, listen, anyone or anything that would take God's rightful place in my life as my primary source of love, joy, affection, hope, security, identity, value, worth, or comfort. You start thinking about that. Anything, anything that would take God's rightful place in my life as my source of love or joy or what gives me hope or what gives me security or where do I find my identity or where do I find my value and worth. I mean, so many different things. And Most often, most often for Christians, our idols are not bad things, they're good things. It might be our family, it might be our, my spouse or my children, it might be our career, it might be our finances, it might be my health, it might be good things. But they've taken God's rightful Place in our life. There's a number of ways, a number of different idols that could show up. Flip over real quick, just for a moment. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 10. It's a great text. And uh, Paul here is actually warning the Corinthian church about idolatry. And he actually gives us a couple different forms of idolatry in 1 Corinthians 10. And so let me just talk about three uh, common idols uh, that we find. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, this is far from exhaustive, but I found it striking that it is looking at these things. I'm like, yeah, those are pretty much the idols that we have in our society today. And in first, 1 Corinthians 10, here's one thing you've got to know. This is steeped in Old Testament understanding. And so he references numerous events. In fact, four or five different encounters that unfold in the Old Testament. Um, and we won't turn to those. Uh, but I'll give you the references as we move through in case you want to go to that place. But let's start in verse 6. Paul says this, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, and quoting here from Exodus 32, when they were worshiping the golden calf, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He says this in verse 8, We must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did. And then referencing an account from Numbers 25, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Common idols. The first is this. It's the idol of sex. It's the idol of sex. We idolize sex in our society. I mean, it permeates our society. You can see this just about anywhere and everywhere. I mean, you watch TV for 10 minutes, and I promise you, you've seen it. Commercials are the worst You'll have some highly suggestive commercial, and you're like, "I thought they were selling dog food, right?" It's like, <laughs> "What is that?" Any beer commercial, right? Any beer commercial qualifies for this. If you drink Pabst, you're going to be sexy. Okay, listen. If you're drinking Pabst, you're never sexy. Okay, that's never going to work. Ever. But this, this, this idolization, this hyper-sexualized reality that that, that shows up in our society. It shows up in the form of porn addictions. It shows up in the casual approach that we have towards adultery or sex outside of marriage. It shows up in the ways that we want to redefine our sexuality in, in terms of things that are comfortable for us or what we prefer, not what God tells us. We can go on and on and on with this. Sex is an idol. And that's not just out there; it's very much an issue in the church, loved ones. The idolatry of sex. Here's another one. Look at verse nine. Paul says this: he says we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. It's a reference to Numbers 21. And an account that was going on there, it's the idol of authority and autonomy. That I can put Jesus to the test. Really what it's saying is that I can question God's leading. I can question God's authority. I can question what God is doing. And really the suggestion, especially when you look at Numbers 21, what they're saying is we could have done it better. We could have done it better. God, if it was us, we wouldn't be wandering around in the wilderness and God's going, yeah, it wouldn't be, because you guys kept sinning, and so now that's that's where you found yourself. Now, think about American culture for a minute. I mean, we we breathe this. This idea of, of I'm my own authority or I'm autonomous or I can do my own thing. I mean, even our history, we're founded by a group of rebels not saying what they rebelled against was wrong. I'm just saying, let's just be honest about who we are. We're founded by a group of rebels, people that fought against this. And so in one sense, we shouldn't be surprised that this is who we are. But just because this is who we are as a country does not mean that this is who we should be as believers. See, the idea that as a follower of Jesus, that I'm my own authority, that I'm autonomous, that I don't answer To a higher authority is simply not biblical. The Bible teaches over and over and over again about the idea of submission and surrender to Jesus. It's not a partnership. Hey, I'll do this if you do this, or I'll do this if you do this. It's you're in charge and I'll do whatever you tell me. This idol of authority and autonomy. I can do my own thing. No, you can't. Well, you can. You're just not going to be right with God. Here's the third one. Look at verse 10. He says, Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And that, that's a reference to number 16 and to Korah's rebellion. Fascinating little story where the people are grumbling and complaining and then God swallows them up in the earth. If you want a fun read, go read Number 16 but it's the idol of comfort. Let me say that again. It's the idol of comfort. Because see, what the people were saying in number 16 is, we're not comfortable. God, we're, we're, we're not comfortable. You haven't given us everything that you're supposed to give us. Can we just be honest about this for a minute? You and I have lived... The most privileged lives of people that have ever lived throughout all of human history. We of anyone from any time ever throughout human history have the least to say when it comes to whining and griping about comfort. Yet we seem to be some of the best at whining and griping about things when it comes to comfort. We cannot look at our spiritual lives like God is setting the whole thing up to make us happy, healthy, and wealthy. And then if that's not the case, if that's not playing out, then God has failed us. Let me just put a couple things in front of you. Jesus died. In fact, he came to do just that. He came to die. We believe that every one of the apostles died martyrs' deaths. They wrote extensively about Suffering. This idea, this fascination we have with comfort is nothing more than a veil for an idol in our life. Idolatry is alive and well. We must be cognizant of its presence in our lives because the idolater will be deserted. Deserted. That God will fail you. They will leave you. They will not respond to you. These five woes. This judgment upon the Chaldeans. God's response to evil. God's response to suffering. God's response to wickedness. Let me just briefly tie it together here. By looking at two verses. Verse 14 and verse 20 verse 14 says this for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the lord as the waters cover the sea and that a great verse the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the lord as the waters cover the sea in reference right in reference to god's judgment of wickedness that's not what we would typically think of like oh yeah everyone's gonna know how great god is because he's gonna deal with sin but that's the context See, what we see in verse verse 14 and verse 20 is this. It's that God's work and God's glory will cover the earth. God's work and God's glory will cover the earth. Now, there's this incredible promise that's embedded in the judgment. And, And I would tell you that the scope of the promise is greater than the scope of the judgment. Did you hear that? Okay, The scope of the promise, the breadth, the reach of the promise, it's greater than... It's more significant than, it's going to run further than the scope of the judgment. Two things briefly here. The earth will be covered with the glory of the Lord. And that's what he says in verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. How? And then he gives us this word picture. As the waters cover the sea. Okay. Well, how do the waters cover the sea? Well, it's full. The ocean fills it up. And it's comprehensive, right? It's not lacking. You don't dive under things and be like, oh, the water didn't fill in this place. I mean, water fills it up. It's full and it's comprehensive. Nothing escapes it. The earth will be covered with the glory of the Lord. I was thinking about this. I couldn't help but think of Philippians 2. I mean, one of the highest mountain peaks in all the Scripture. Scripture that incredible text about Jesus, and then where Paul finishes that. Paul says this. He says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You catch what he's saying there? Every knee should bow. Okay, where? In heaven? Okay, that's some people. On earth? That's some people. And under the earth? That would be the rest of humanity. Humanity will find themselves in one of those three places. What Paul is saying is that every single person who has ever lived will find themselves on their knees proclaiming the supremacy and the lordship of Jesus. Some willingly, others forcibly, all will be there. The glory or God's work and glory will cover the earth. It is comprehensive. Every single one of us. You might love it. You might hate it. The reality is you will find yourself eventually on your knees proclaiming the glory of the Lord. Then look at verse 20 real quick. He says, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. In some respects, this is in response to Habakkuk's initial question. God, why? Why are you allowing this? Why are you doing this? Why is this happening? Why aren't you responding to these things? And God's saying, I am doing something. And then he says, I'm in my holy temple and all the earth keeps silent before me. What, what, what's he getting at there? Here's what I think God's saying. Is the earth is silent before him because they, they have no rebuke. There's no rebuttal. There's no argument. There's no complaint. Why would that be the case? Because in the end, God is going to silence, God's work will silence all of that. In the end, they will be able to look back and go, I see it. And I can't argue, I see it. And I can't complain, I see it and I can't push back on it. Starting next week when we get into Habakkuk chapter 3, it's almost like it's a different person shows up. There's this shift that happens in Habakkuk that's pretty dramatic. And part of that is this, he begins to see that, that I'm to be silent before the Lord because I can recognize the work of God and what's happening here. God's work and God's glory will cover the earth. Loved ones, God is going to deal with sin. He's going to deal with sin. And he's going to vindicate his people. And That functions both as a warning but also as a means Of hope for us. And so let me actually take us back, go back to Habakkuk 2 3. Let me close with this. This is the very beginning of God's second response to Habakkuk. Because, in as much as I want God to respond right now to these things, it's important for us to remember where God started. He says this, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It's coming, right? Loved one, it's coming. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come. It will not delay. Let's wait for it with confidence. Let's wait for it with expectation. Let's wait for it with hope, knowing that our good God will in fact respond. Let's pray. Jesus, as we think about really so much of the evil and wickedness that is dealt with and addressed in Habakkuk 2. God, we think about your response to sin. God, we think about, um, for some of us, man, it's heavy and burdensome. And we want to know that you're going to do it. And so for those of us who have suffered under this, God, we pray that you would give us confidence and hope and trust to know that at the perfect time you're going to deal with this. And God, for others of us, that as we moved through the Chaldeans, as we saw the, the wickedness that you are going to judge and deal with, that you would be speaking to our hearts and to our lives with respect to these matters. Understanding, understanding that in your loving kindness and in your grace, you issue forth a warning to us. God, would you give us the courage to respond to that?